Thanks. Thank you for sitting down with Best Self today on this gorgeous, sunny, sparkly Monday morning. It is beautiful. Yeah. It's perfect. I know, for September, right? So there's this little story that I just wanted to tell you that about a year ago or so, our paths almost crossed professionally. And at that time, I didn't know who you were, but I was intrigued. And as I do, I started to, to do my research. And you had me at trampoline. <laughs> Apparently, we had a lot of people at trail. Oh, by the way, I can't find that video. It is no longer up. I know, so I looked for it again. And so for clarity for our audience, I just want to explain that here you were on this trampoline, jumping up and down in a video. And to camera, you said, I have something really important to share with you. And in that moment, you completely had me with your whimsy and your playfulness and your down-to-earth sensibility. The first thing on your bio reads dad, actually New York City dad and husband. Then comes award-winning author, speaker, media producer, camper, serial entrepreneurist and founder of the mission-driven media and education venture, The Good Life Project. When I read that list and I take that in, it feels to me like all roads have led to this incredible culmination, this new book that's about to launch. I mean, this is our galley, the How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science, and Practical Wisdom. And um, I think that it would be a really great way to start this interview if you could tell us how a son of a hippie potter mother and a mad academic father goes on to become a corporate attorney and ultimately is a man jumping on a trampoline who <laughs> in bare feet, in bare feet uh, guiding thousands hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs to live purposeful lives yeah you know it's interesting because uh, I turned 50 this year and um, and uh, and I, I'm at a point in my life where it's sort of like Steve Jobs' famous quote, you know, like you connect the dots looking back, but you have to have lived enough of life to actually have dots to see how they actually weave together and form Oh, I love that. You have to live. Yeah. So um, I'm at a point where I've started to reflect a lot and sort of like wonder what has been the through line with all of these things that I did. When I was a kid, I was, I was an artist. I literally, I made my walking around money painting back when there were album covers, you know, on the backs of jean jackets. Like I still remember my big three ones. What were they? They were uh, Rush. Um, <laughs> real music, right? Right, real music. <laughs> Molly Hatchet and um, and Boston, like that epic sort of like upside down spaceship guitar, the famous Boston cover. And from there, I actually went on to to school and ended up in law school, which was a bit of an aberration for me because I was also an entrepreneur as a kid. I was always figuring out ways to sort of like mix craft and entrepreneurship to earn a living. Can I ask you a quick yeah. question? Do you think? We're hardwired as entrepreneurs? I don't think we're hardwired as entrepreneurs. I think some of us are, actually, I don't even love to use the word hardwired anymore because there's so much rewiring that can happen that we now know with neuroplasticity. Um, but I think a lot of us are predisposed by the time we reach adulthood. We've sort of, we've wired ourselves in a way where we're more comfortable living in a place of sustained uncertainty. And that's one of the fundamental traits of being able to survive as an entrepreneur is that capacity, either as an artist or an entrepreneur, you need the ability to be in that place long enough for next level ideas and solutions and creations to emerge. But being in that space kills most people. Um, we're not wired to handle that well at all. So there are some people who do hit a certain point in their lives and for some reason through you know, a combination of nature and nurture, they're, they're able to be in that space more comfortably. And those very often are the biggest creators that we have. That said, you know, what I have learned along the way is that you can also train a lot of that if you understand how to do it. Because um, I wasn't one of the people who was wired that way. I was, you know, I'm breathed by creation and the creative process, but I've always suffered pretty greatly along the way. Um, and so it took me a lot of decades to really understand what I needed to do to start to be okay in that place, really just in the last five years or so is where I start to come to a place where I understand the daily practices that I need to adopt to sort of lean into that and be okay. Well, one of our writers wrote a great line and I just quote over and over again. It's like, I got here as fast as I could. Yeah. Right? 
So you go, so how did, you know, law school? Yeah. So and I you practiced law? Right, I did. I went to law school, I practiced law, which was an, an aberration from, if you ask those who knew me, the law school was a really strange thing, but I was also an entrepreneur in college and a, and a DJ built a sound and lighting company. I didn't exactly go to class in college. <laughs> And I was very curious about what I was capable of academically and intellectually. And that was a large part of why I actually went to law school. And I figured, I didn't know if I'd practice, but I knew it would give me a great set of skills no matter right. what I did. And I ended up being very fortunate, I worked very hard, I did well. And that gave me opportunity in the career, which is, I stayed there for about four and a half years. But during that window of time, I actually ended up in the hospital emergency surgery when essentially my immune system shut down. Ended up with a- Your body's like, yeah. Hello. Yeah. I mean, and what was, I was working maniacal hours, um, huge levels of stress, sleeping very little. My lifestyle habits were absolutely atrocious. My nutrition was non existent. My movement was non existent. Minds and practices. How old were you about this? 30, right around 30. Right. And where we still think we're invincible and yeah, like we can, on we the can edge. Keep, right. right. We can just keep on yeah. pushing the. Yeah, and my body basically gave me a wake-up call, um, sent me to surgery when uh, my immune system crashed, had a huge uh, infection in the middle of my body that literally ate a hole through my intestine from the outside in. I don't think you have. It was, you know, it was time. So it took me another year, close to a year, to work my way out of it. And then back into the world of entrepreneurship and wellness. And so I so was it literally in that hospital room? Did you like think, I knew, like, I can't go yeah, back, I can't do this anymore? I, I knew that... Um, this was not my future. Um, there was that, and there was also the awakening to the fact that the carrot that was being dangled in front of me, I had no interest in. So if I loved the practice, if I saw myself really wanting to be in a place of being a partner in a large firm, which is where I was at that point, I would have probably figured out a way to change my lifestyle, to be able to handle. Right, because um, it's possible, that. correct? Yeah, and I don't know the career at all, it's just it wasn't mine. And when I realized that I didn't want where it was leading me, and the day-to-day -day life was destroying me. It was sort of the decision was made for me, but uh, I also realized that was going to take a huge financial hit, and it was going to take me time to save up enough money to sort of make my next move, which would lead me back into entrepreneurship, learning an entirely new industry from the bottom up and making almost no money. So, so that's so. But I had a plan in action at that point. That's helpful. Yeah, it <laughs> is. Helpful. It is. So I kind of knew. I was like, like nine to twelve months. I'm just going to save as much as I can. I can try and take care of myself as much as I can now. But I knew I was on my way. So you stayed for another nine. I did. Yeah. Yeah, because I knew I wanted that bond. On your terms. Right. Exactly. And I didn't want to launch into this next place from a place of scarcity and desperation. Right. I, I wanted to know that I, I had enough, so I had a bit of a window to explore figure out this new industry is another thing that i really love about this book because there there it's this yin yang of being practical and magical thinking yeah. you know and we'll, we'll dive into that more later but i do love this fact that yes do what you love but it, it's nice to have a plan it's yeah. nice to you know you can we can all say yes i want to be a um an entrepreneur but you don't necessarily want to be a starving one Right. No, it's a, I'm at a point in my life, and I've been at a point in my life for a long time now, where I live in New York City, I have a family to take care of. You know, we like to live comfortably. Um, so I don't want to go back to the place where I go to zero. And I know some people are okay doing that. I'm not. And most people I know don't want to blow up their lives in the name of this. So my, my exploration has been a lot more, can we not take the nuclear option? You know, can we actually find a way where we literally just practice our way? into this next leg of our journey and it's we just kind of slowly build the next leg until it reaches a point where we're like oh we're, we're just transitioning into it in a more organic natural way even if it takes more time because i think most people won't even take the first step if you tell them the only option is the mass disruption option being an entrepreneur is not for the faint of heart it's not not at all i mean um, just like being an artist is not for the faint of heart right. you know anytime you create something from nothing anytime you invest a huge amount of time resources, love, in something where you don't know it's going to work, you don't know how it's going to end. When you were laying in that hospital bed and you said, okay, I've got to shift this, enough is enough, and I'm going to do this on my own terms, and I'm going to do it in a, in a practical way, uh, what was the vision? What was the... What was the <laughs> it's a great question. So I've, I've always been deeply fascinated by mind-body connection, by mindset, by psychology, by semantics. Um, Especially I when was, you 
you know, made a hole in your intestine. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that, right? You're like, okay, um, I gotta figure this thing out. Right, exactly. I, I was, my mom was a modern dancer also when I was a little kid. I was, a, I trained as a competitive gymnast for the first, you know, 19, 20 years of my life. So it's deeply fascinating. Wow, I didn't see that on your resume. <laughs> it's not in there. <laughs> um, and I was the person who, even later in life, would just lie on a beach with a kinesiology manual because I was fascinated by it. So I was you know, looking to sort of find the intersection of all of these things, entrepreneurship, mind, body, wellness. Um, so for me, I knew that as I was building this buffer, I also needed to learn about this next industry. So I started just studying up on it. I found trade organizations, got all sorts of industry data to find out what worked, what was working, you know, what was the state of the industry, where were the gaps. And then I went and actually got my first certification as a personal trainer while I was literally barely sleeping. So around what time was this, like what year? This was 96, 97, something like that. Did you ever have a moment where you thought, this oh my insane. God, what have I just done? Like Many. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't call it a moment, actually, I would call it a span. That's where I connected the dots. Yeah, and look, I mean, like here, here's the reality check on this. Like I knew that you know, I, I, I had a degree, I had a license, I was still a member of the bar, I'd done really well academically and that, that would follow me. So if things blew up, you know, I had a retreat option. I didn't want to go there and it was a last thing in the world that I would, would have thought about doing. But in the back of my mind, you know, I can't deny the fact that I knew that I had a fallback. So you're a so, logical thinker. Yeah, logical thinker, but also pretty risk tolerant at the right. same time. So during that first movie, like there was that, even though to me going back there would have been disastrous for me and for my health. But I, I went from there and my first job out of law was making 12 bucks an hour as a personal trainer. Could I have actually gotten probably like a mid to an upper level management job in a, in a, you know, a company in the industry? Probably. But to me, I'm always fascinated at learning an industry from the most basic touch point. Right. So I can understand that, like the human, the level of one-to-one interaction, right. what's going right, what's going wrong. How so I can understand how to do it better right. and build something better around that. And then I'll build something bigger on top of that. But I don't want to start from the top down. I want to start from the most basic point of service, understand the human dynamic. How can I serve better? How can I delight better? How can I let, you know, elevate and help people? Um, and from there, you can build something different, and that's what we did. So I went off and uh, launched a, my first facility, um, which was sort of a, a smaller footprint, 5,000 square foot high-end training facility. We took off very quickly because essentially, I looked at the industry and I said, let me do everything that they're doing differently. And we thrived really quickly. That was in New Jersey, actually. And uh, I was really yearning to kind of come back into the city and do something a little different so I sold out um, I had a partner in that company also so I sold my equity to an investor group came back to New York took a year off actually because I was getting really interested in writing too and then um, got a bug about yoga and I, I had been developing my own practice and I was looking around New York City we were living in Hell's Kitchen then I was married three-month-old baby and uh, I said you know there's something interesting going on here because I'm pretty comfortable with my body with movement and I'm uncomfortable going into most of the studios that are around the city. I knew that people that came at it, like, you know, somebody who's in the middle years of their lives, unfit, unflexible, um, very uncomfortable with sort of anything other than mainstream would be uncomfortable walking into these other locations, even though they were great. That's a really good point though, because it, it, even with a lot of these gyms and clubs and you've got to have that, you feel like you've got to, your body's got to be in a certain shape and you've got to be yeah. in a certain, certain, Right. Label. It's like, I'll go once I'm already Right, when I'm already there. It's like, which kind of defeats right. the whole purpose. And right. then the other thing that I realized is that the vast majority of people, you know, once I started moving to the yoga world, who practice are women, at least in the US. And women have much higher incidences of things like centrated migraines, um, migraines in general, but also centrated migraines. And there were all these triggers that exist in a lot of studios that actually pushed women away from them as much as they really wanted to come to the practice. So when we started, the idea was to create a center where we kept the power of the practice, but lowered barriers to participation. So, um, so we did that and literally uh, signed a lease for a six-year lease for a floor in a building in New York City. I was married, had a new home, had a three-month-old baby on uh, the day before 9-11. I was reading that and I thought, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was, you know, that was a moment for all of us who were long-time New Yorkers. Um, 
and stand still. It was, and it came close to not moving forward with it because I was questioning a lot. But um, there was a moment a couple of days in that made me say, you know, like, this, we have one pass at this. And my sense was that the city would need what we were about to create more than ever. More than before. ever, exactly. And so we went ahead with it, and, you know, in uh, the middle of November, uh, we opened the place. Where we were located was actually two avenue blocks, um, which for non-city dwellers is, you know, like back or at least about a half mile from some of the big piers where many of the relief workers were being staged. We just sent people down, we're like, come, don't pay. It's just, this is, people were literally walking around the city not knowing what to do, not knowing where to go. They just want a place to be with others and, and be in community right. and find we some connect. way to breathe. Right. And so we changed everything about the way that we were going to launch and opened up our doors to whoever wanted to show up for whatever reason. And the community embraced us. Uh, we grew rapidly, and it was a uh, it was an amazing experience. And, yeah, and it's and that studio, the whole company, you know, the company is still there. Um, I at the end of two thousand eight ended up selling it um, because by then, after teaching for seven years and uh, owning and growing this, um, it was also time for me to move on to right. my next adventure. So the million dollar question: How do we live a good life? A couple answers. Um, one thing that a I whole discovered, book of answers. <laughs> it's one thing I discovered really early on is that there is no single answer that is 100% universal to every person. You know, I've had the, the amazing gift to sit down with hundreds of who the world might perceive to be the most successful people in almost every domain in life at this point and ask them this exact question, how would they define it? And very rarely has the answer been the same. It surprised me, to be honest with you. I figured after about a dozen people, it would start to really like, okay, these two are in this category, these two yeah, are in this category. Yeah, it's always been different in nuanced ways. But what I start to realize is there are big patterns that emerge. And I had always, for years, in when, when I was trying to figure out how to craft my life in a way that was deeply meaningful to me, that there was a standard, that there was a question that I always asked myself. So an opportunity came to me, whether it was to spend time with the person, to develop a friendship, to build a business, whatever it may have been. I would ask myself, will this allow me to absorb myself in activities and relationships that fill me up while surrounding myself with people I can't get enough of? And if the answer was yes, I was in. If the answer was no, I was out. You know, and, and those activities were very often a blend of fierce creativity and fierce service. Right. So from that, sort of the blend of all these conversations, and that's sort of like more fundamental, and that's, that's sort of the metric that I've been using for many years. And, largely continue to use to sort of figure out my own life. This bigger model, the patterns, like the dots start to, to drop and, and form patterns for me. And the idea of actually a good life being basically a blend of what I call the three buckets, three different buckets. You know, that we, we are each made up of a, a bucket of vitality, a bucket of connection, and a bucket of contribution. One thing that I really love when I'm looking at the Good Life Project, I'm calling through your information, or your books, and particularly this new book that's just about to come out, is you have this really beautiful way, a succinct way of, of distilling a message. I have millions of quotes that I could pull out of here, um, pull quotes that I would just say sort of like define the essence of the interview. And for you, I kept coming back to something that was really simple and it just kept making me laugh. and made me just feel inspired and filled and it was simply and i quote do stuff that matters and the other one is do epic shit make meaning yeah make meaning i just wanted to show this picture because you've come up with this great metaphor for uh, for buckets i mean everybody always talks about their bucket list yeah. as if it's like the end game yeah but here we have connection contribution and vitality and i want to get into each one of them with you but what I loved about this um, distillation is uh, your description, how, you know, number one, buckets leak. And, you know, that it matters, like that they all matter, like all aspects of our lives. Like we've got to pay attention to all of them. If one bucket's at a deficit, it affects the other buckets, right? Nothing operates in a vacuum in our lives and everything is interdependent. You know, it's like, if you look at medicine these days, and this is why, you know, um, I talk about, for example, uh, your state of mind and your state of body is one thing. You know, they're part of a single bucket. And, and, and for years, a lot of us separated those things out. You know, there's, there's mind, mindset, there's your psychology, and your emotion, and then there's your physical body. 
Right. And it's just this complete fiction. Right, so let's yeah. go into vitality because yeah, you're sure. talking about vitality right now. Sure. And um, just continue on that thought. So there, there is this interdependence with everything. And so if you think about the vitality bucket, we're talking about optimizing your state of mind and your state of body. And what we know now is that it's clear as day, there's the science validated, is there is no separation in the two. It's one feedback mechanism and it's always feeding that from one side to the other. So if you are physically ill, if you're injured, if you're in pain, like physically, it is going to immediately reverse up into your state of mind. It has the opportunity to send you into a state of angst, anguish, depression, anxiety, and all severe manifestations of those. Same thing if you're depressed. If you're just feeling blue, it is very likely to actually manifest somatically in your body as pain, as illness. So it's there's no reason or way to actually talk about them separately. So when I talk about filling your vitality bucket, you know, the conversation, I talk about a lot of things that actually address both mindset and the physical body because I think you can't talk about them separately. But the right. idea is, you know, you want to do a little bit every day to really make your physical body and you know, feel better and to elevate your state of mind. Right. It's kind of amazing that we still are having this conversation. Yes. Um, but it's true. I mean, and I, I listen, in all fairness, I've been there before where something really hurts. My back really hurts. And that's well, real pain, right? Right behind the scenes this morning. I right. mean, like, I was a little late today because I have five things going on at once. I had a back spasm. We know where that came from. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I once had, a, you know, my back go out on me completely at, like, a really high, intense stress point in my life. And I wasn't aware of those connections. And it's funny you mentioned kinesiology because it wasn't until a friend brought me, came with a car and said, I'm, I'm taking you to my kinesiologist. I was like, I don't care. You could take me to your witch doctor. I need to make this pain go. Right. And like literally was flat on the floor. But it was the beginning of that cracking open for me. The understanding that, oh yeah, all that stress that I've just been having, you know, it's right here. <laughs> of course, you know, we're still bombarded with pharmaceutical ads and um, magical pills that can make that back pain go away, right? right? We love shortcuts and we love instant. And our expectation of both is only getting higher and higher. We want shorter and we want more instant. Um, Technology is really reinforcing those things. So one of the things also in this book that you really do a great job of and um, seems like it's an overall goal with all the buckets is really just sort of discerning where are you disconnected from? What are you disconnected from? Um, and at the same time, like what's working, what's not working? How do we look at our lives and assess them and say, okay, this needs my attention or this is gonna start affecting my other buckets. One of the things that's really important to me about, about not just writing this book, but about all the work that I do, whether it's you know, experiences that we create, programs, products, whatever it may be, is that we move beyond information. We all know that everything we need to know has been out there for the better part of a couple thousand years, if not longer. The reason that the human condition is a human condition and you know there's still so much suffering, still so much pain, is not that we don't know how to live better, it's that we don't act on what we know. So the goal with everything that I do is to figure out how to deliver it in a way that somehow flips a switch. Sparks something. That sparks somebody and make it so simple. I mean, so the whole idea with the buckets is it's a, it's a model and a metaphor where you hear a bunch, you remember it for life, and it can guide your behavior on a daily basis. So people will actually use it. My greatest hope with everything that we do is not that just that people learn what to do, but that people actually do it. You say the real magic is taking this from yeah. the book to the world. Right, it's just action. It's not just reading the book. It's not just doing the exercise. It's like, take this to your life. So how do we train the average Western mind now boasting a shorter attention span than that of a goldfish to focus and become more persistently aware? How do we become aware that we're not aware? That is a big question. And it's sort of, it's one of the first things I introduce, especially under that bucket. But the truth is, it's sort of like, it's the meta skill, you know, because how do we know if we're not living a good life unless we're aware of the life we're living? Unless we actually develop the skill set to know, am I happy, am I sad, am I in pain, or am I calm? Am I in love, am I in friendship? Am I working fiercely, do I care about what I'm doing, or do I have no interest in it whatsoever? Most of us actually have never developed that skill set. We're trained in domain knowledge, you know, like in specific sets of knowledge. We're never trained in self-knowledge, and we're never given a, a process to sort of discover 
things about ourselves and also to just become, process to become aware in our own lives, to actually be able to zoom the lens out and say, huh, what's really happening here? Like, what are the facts versus the story that I'm telling you about the facts? So developing sort of an awareness practice, a mindfulness practice, to me is a foundation for pretty much everything because how can you be intentional about your life if you're not aware before that? Right. You know, so you know, like the, to, to actually choose how you want to live, to move out of a place where you open your eyes in the morning and you're responding to a million people's agendas, but yours, you know, starting with email and then text and then Snapchat and then Instagram and then everything else. People are coming at you. Essentially, there's a mad dash of people in all different parts of your life demanding that you spend this day satisfying their agenda. So you react. You live reactively every minute of every day. And sometimes you sneak in a little bit of intentionality, a little bit of choice that says, I choose to craft my life this way. I choose to do this meaningful thing or be with this person who I can't get enough of, but not enough. And, and a, you know, the prerequisite to all of that is actually developing the skills so you can become aware of when you're not doing it, when you're being intentional and reactive. And that is the foundation for being able to actually choose. And it's really interesting because it essentially goes back to very simple questions. And I remember a time in my life where I wasn't asking myself questions. So if you were to go back to that 30-year-old you who's about to crash and, and to all the you know, all the 30 year olds out there who are sort of not asking those questions, what question do they start with? To me, a starting point um, is developing a daily practice, a daily mindfulness, a daily awareness practice. Because uh, it's not an instant thing, it's a skill set that, you know, it's that uh, there are some people um, who probably just go around and they're, hey, like, they're, in some way they're tapped in. That's not most people, especially right. in Western society. Right, so it's a practice that builds over time. So for me, I wake up every morning and I have a morning ritual. And the, the center of that ritual is a seated mindfulness practice. And you know that actually started for me, um, not in the nicest way. It started with me on my knees trying to be okay as I was moving through a really difficult thing. But it, it turned into something that took me from being in a lot of pain to baseline, and then from baseline to really, really good and hyper aware. And having the ability to just kind of like stop a lot and say, is this what I actually want to be doing right now? Right. Is this how I want to be having this conversation with this person? You know, like, is the way that I'm investing my time adding meaning to my life and to others as a being of service to people? I think the most fundamental thing for a lot of people is to start to develop that morning practice. Um, it doesn't have to be big. I mean, I sit for 25 to 30 minutes every morning, but it took me time to get there. It could start for someone with a walk. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it could be many things, but, but essentially what it really boils down to is a sort of settling in and a real genuine self-care practice, like yeah. something that sets you off on the day that really says, like, I love you, you're worth it, and I'm going to take care of you and before you head out. Yeah, it, it's a commitment to cultivating stillness. Right. Um, to cultivating the ability to, like you said, become aware of your awareness, which is very meta. Even but though it's getting really up a little bit earlier. Yeah, I mean, I'm the first person who's up in my house. Um, and I take that window before, yeah, in the really quiet hours in the morning, to just be with myself. Those are the best, yeah. best hours. It's also I mean, the best creative time, right? It is very creative. creative, yeah. I um, also don't want to gloss over the fact that this is also a practical guide for people, that you have these daily, uh, you have these prompts, these daily explorations. So could you just give us like an example of a, of a, a daily exploration sure. in the vitality section? <laughs> sure. So there's a chapter called Forest Bathing, or it's about this. You have the best chapter of Forest, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and the idea is that um, there's actually tremendous research on how nature affects both our, our, um, our physiology um, and our psychology. Uh, being among trees, being among nature, literally, you know, like it decreases markers for inflammation and disease, it improves mood. It actually really, it has a pretty profound effect on us, so much so that in Japan, there are actually these things called Shinrin-yoko designated forests, which translates to forest bathing. Because you literally, you know, you want people going into these forests because it makes the culture healthier and happier. So many of us don't have forests to walk into. I was just going to say, let's talk right? about that. You know, I'm very fortunate. So what can I do? I can go outside. I'm in the middle of New York City. You figure, okay, I'm surrounded by concrete all day long. 
Truth is, there are these beautiful little community gardens all over the place in the city. I'm too blocks from Central Park. You will find me there on almost a daily basis just to be in among greenery or walking along the Hudson River, which is my other reset. But even if you don't have that, let's say, if you don't have grass, if you don't have trees, if you don't have any nature near you, which I'm pretty suspect about, to, to be honest with you. Right. Um, but even if you don't have that, there's research that shows that simply having a plant in view in your interior environment can change you. One of the fascinating things about that, if you have a plant in view in an inside environment, it actually decreases, I think it was anger, by 40% over wow. the course of a day. So it makes a real, these things make a real difference. So you can start with these little things, bring greenery into your internal environment. And then, as much as you can, get out into these environments. You don't have to spend hours, but just be in them. Because when you think about it, that it's sort of like getting back to our most primal nature. These are the things that we do and that we did to be okay in the world. And we tend to extract ourselves from them more and more, and, and we're suffering more and more. The human condition has not improved a whole lot. Exactly. You know, and so you start to say, well, at the same time, we're pulling ourselves in some of the things that made us okay past generations and I think we're seeing a bit of a reclaiming of that to a certain extent. It's also a form of active meditation. It is. You know, absolutely. your best ideas come when you're walking alone yeah. and you're not on your phone. And I unfortunately I have to leave my phone at home because a lot of times I love to run early in the morning, but I will actually get on the phone or listen to something. <laughs> and you know it's that multitasking so it's like that just reset that downtime. Yeah. That. So I'm gonna move into the next bucket. Let's move into connection. Yeah. And this is nurturing of obviously relationships with other people but also relationship to yourself and then relationship to a higher source yeah i mean it's it's all about you and jonathan height a psychologist we call the in-between you know it's you and, and your knowledge and relationship with yourself with an intimate partner with family members with close friends colleagues as you mentioned if it's something that's meaningful to you something bigger than you, whether you call it source or God or whatever it may be. It's also about community, which a lot of us actually forget. We have a, a profound necessary need to belong. If we do belong, a lot of life flourishes for us. If we don't belong, a lot of life withers. And what's fascinating to me, I'm fascinated by this part of connection especially, uh, because we tend to think about love, especially romantic love when we think about connection, and that can be really important, right, and a beautiful thing. One of the things that we very often don't think about is community and a sense of belonging, of being with like-minded people with shared values and aspirations and beliefs on a regular basis, being being among them, being held by them, being supported by them, sharing ideas. I call those dream keepers. I love that. That's beautiful. Right. And that's going away in a lot of people's lives. You know, families are getting distributed in a way that they, they were generations ago. People are just splitting off and moving away to all different parts. Um, employers aren't providing a sense of community anymore. People are fleeing um, faith-based organizations and communities at a faster rate than ever before in history. Local leagues and trade organizations are going away. So all these places where so we it's like a breakdown. Yeah. yeah. Disconnect. We're not finding it anymore. And we're suffering because of it and not understanding that that's a part of the reason that we're suffering. So, so you're really guiding people to, 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 to make those connections yeah. and to seek out those kinds of... To get proactive right. about, you know, like reclaiming that sense, where can I find that sense of belonging? You know, or what, how, and if I can't find it, can I create it? Right. You know? Which you certainly can. You can, absolutely. I mean, it's what we do with everything that we do in life. You talk about energy vampires yeah. and creating a, um, a vampire edge. So I think that's the, the, the counter to this conversation. Yeah, I mean, there, there will be people in all of our lives who, are, who fill us up, and there will be people in all of our lives who empty us out. You know, and, and popular culture sometimes says, well, just jettison those people who empty you out from your lives. Sometimes you can, sometimes you should. Sometimes you can, right? sometimes you should. I mean, if it's close family members, if it's a dear friend who's been there for life, you're not gonna just walk away from those people. I mean, the practical reality is, you want these people in your life. They may not agree with you and they may be going through something deeply painful. They may be angry, they may be spiteful. And that may be sort of putting them in a place where they're trying to bring you down at the same time. Not actually because they're venomous towards you, but they may be in their own really dark place. And, the, and, and seeing other people not there with them can actually increase their pain. So one of the most important things I think is to really understand when you're around those people, who can you really step away from and who can't you? 
And if there are people you can comfortably move away from, do it. But if there aren't, you know, it's time for a deeper conversation with them. It's also very likely- It might be easier to move away from them than have that conversation. It might be, Um, (laughs) but but sad for so many people to do because they may literally like throw people out of their lives who, if they were willing to actually be with them more compassionately for a bit longer time, have difficult conversations and try and stand in their shoes and understand what's really happening. And they may be able to actually navigate this and come full circle and turn it around and then have that beautiful relationship stained in their lives for the balance moving forward. Rather than just saying, no, 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 you're, you're stuck in the life out of me, go away. Right. Um, which is sort of like the popular approach. In the I really love that point because the cultivation of compassion creates creates perspective. It does. And sometimes the way we once perceived a person or situation, we formulate this idea and then we hold staunchly to it. And it's like a dog with a bone, we're not gonna let go of that. And so it's through that compassion when you all of a sudden say, if you can just like let that armor down and sort of say like, oh, I never really thought of it that way. Ask yourself, you know, what is this person suffering that I may not be witness to? And bucket number three. Mm-hmm. Contribution. Yeah. It's how you bring your gifts, your the essence of who you are, your creative voice, your strengths to the world. Um, and it's interesting because we actually had a conversation about um, about this when I was working on the book, and the suggestion was to call it work, and, and I resisted that because work immediately the association for everybody is this is a thing you get paid for in the world. Right. Sometimes it is. Nine to five, Monday through Friday. <laughs> But sometimes it's not. Right. You know, like sometimes your work, sometimes your greatest contribution is as a parent. Sometimes it's your greatest contribution is as a value, as, as a volunteer in an organization where you're, you feel a deep yearning for service to a particular community. Sometimes your greatest contribution as an artist is painting from five to nine at night and on the weekends. And you have no desire to leave the nine to five gig that you get paid for because that puts a roof over your head, you know, like food on the table, and gives you the freedom to not actually have to tailor the deeply meaningful creative work that you're doing to any commercial need. So uh, it's important, I think, to understand that contribution may be your work. And if they align, that's beautiful, that's amazing. But you can still have a really beautiful life and contribute with grace without having to actually make that the centerpiece. You just segue perfectly into something I wanted to ask you because there was something in the book that really sort of stopped me in my tracks because sometimes we throw these terms around like purpose and passion and, and they begin to sound like just Hallmark, Hallmark greeting cards, right? And platitudes and cliches. And there was something that you wrote, which was, what if you don't so much have a passion or purpose as much as you pursue something or a bunch of things with passion and a sense of purpose? And the, the nuance of that was so beautifully displayed by that story. I'd love for you to tell the story of the call center. I think they were actively yeah. fundraising for scholarships yep. or something like that. So if you, could you share that? Yeah, story? This, this was um, research that Adam Grant, who's uh, one of the top professors at Wharton, wrote this fabulous book called Give and Take. They went to a call center at, at the university. And it's a notoriously brutal job. And because these are people who are just making calls. They're constantly getting hung up. Right, they're constantly getting hung up. They're asking for money. You right. know, will you make donations? And, and this particular call center was trying to raise money for donations for scholarships. What Adam and his team did was they, they brought in a couple of people who had been through college, some of them being the first people in their families, who would never have had the chance to actually go through college, but for the fact that people like the people in the call center had made these calls and raised the money to create these scholarships that let these people go to school. And just for a few minutes told their story to these people in the call centers. These people for the first time actually understood, I'm not just dialing for dollars, right? I'm doing something which is helping change people's lives right. in a tangible way. And I've just seen this person, like, I get it now. Without deliberately or intending to make any changes, they then tracked the output, the money raised by those people after this intervention, and it skyrocketed. People were making more calls. They were they didn't even realize what they were doing differently. All they knew was the outcomes were dramatic. They connected higher. to something. Yeah, because it now it meant something. There was right. a sense of purpose. There was a sense of meaning that was much deeper, and it changed the way that they brought themselves to the world. You no, know, maybe we're not in the you know you're not so passionate about your job, and and 
And he also said, I'm not saying stay in that job, but sort of explore what's underneath that first. And what is it that you're disconnected to? Because it might not even be the job. It might be something something else that's going on within you and that you can show up for your life. Right. And how many people have left a job because they're like, oh, this job is awful. And then they move to another job and soon enough, oh, this job is awful. And they move to it and like six jobs later, suddenly like the world is against them and every job is awful. It's just like, you know, like every, if you're an employer or an employee, just everything you do is awful. Never really actually considering What's like, the common denominator here? Right, right. And it just comes <laughs> to the inside out. Maybe yeah. there's work that we need to do. And right. there's a whole field now. There's a really interesting sort of line of research called job crafting, um, which really sort of looks at the job that you're doing and says, can I do this differently? Can I re-engineer the way that I'm actually doing the work under the same exact job title so that it becomes more meaningful to me? And it's, it's really effective, actually, at both making people a lot happier and more fulfilled in the work that they're doing. And also, interestingly, having them advance much more quickly. So it's fascinating how much more control we have over these things than we sometimes like to give ourselves credit for because it makes it easier for us to just right. bail right. Um, rather than do the work and say, how can I actually make this astonishing? My recommendation to people before they leave anything is always make it as good as you can conceivably make it. Right. Then at that point, if you still want to leave, that's right. You've done your exploration. Yeah. But I also really wanted to bring that point up because I feel like there's some passion shaming, you know? I mean, I think some some people walk around and they're like, I'm I'm you know, I'm living a life full of passion and purpose. And then other people are sitting there thinking, like, I'm not really hundred percent sure what my passion and purpose is. But it's like it starts with bringing your passion to whatever it is you're right. doing. It's not it's not a noun. It's it's an adjective. Right. <laughs> You know, that's the whole thing. It's like you treat it as if it's this noun that you have to lighten mind and I've got a lot of it. Or go through a process and say, I've found the noun as passion in my life. For 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 a really, really thin slice of people, it is that. For the kid who realizes at the age of six they want to be a vet. And that's it, right? But for the vast majority of us, we don't know. And the only thing, like the, the to me, the, the thing that allows us to live well and still feel like even if we can't name the passion or the purpose. You know, but feel like we're living every day with passion, with purpose, is to wake up every day and just say, what can I do today that gives me that experience? Right. And then what can I do tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And you look back over a period of years and you're like, you know what? There was never one big thing that dropped in, that one big noun that was my passion and my purpose. But I've lived with fierce passion and with a sense of purpose. That's good. Right. So what lights you up? Uh, Where you are right now. Yeah. Um, Just turned 50. Everything. This moment, my daughter, my wife, meaningful work, being in a relationship with like a team of people who are incredible community of just awesome human beings, uh, being able to create. You know, look, there are drags in all of our lives. There's negative stuff, there's struggles that I have in my life that everybody has in their lives, you know. But for me, I really try and focus on possibility as much as I can. Oh, you, you ooze possibility. I mean, this book oozes possibility. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's, that's largely the goal of this. When did you know that you were going to take all of this and that you really wanted to sort of cultivate this, this community supporting entrepreneurs? Hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs yeah. are really just setting them off on their way. So what's interesting is, is um, we're actually in the middle of sort of probably a pretty significant shift right now. So I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. Something's happened with me in over the last couple of years, really, which is that I've also realized that I may be less interested in entrepreneurship than I thought. And what I've realized is that for me, entrepreneurship is this stunning canvas for the development of human potential. But what I realize I'm more fascinated by is actually how that gauntlet, how that process changes the person within it. So I'm fascinated by how, by entrepreneurship as a tool for the development of human potential. And I'm interested in how that person has changed. But what I've also realized is that I'm just fascinated by human potential. I'm just so interested in how we step into that place where we feel like, yes, you know, like when I, when I take my last breath, I will feel like I'm fully used up. Uh, and that I've been like, I'm expressing all of myself. I'm deeply engaged with those around me. There is meaning in everything that I do. I feel like my strengths, my everything inside of me are being just leveraged to the health on a daily basis. I'm fascinated by not just how entrepreneurs
entrepreneurs do that, but how we all do that. Right. Entrepreneurship, what I've realized, has just been an interesting canvas. And now I'm really, I've realized that I'm actually starting to broaden my lens a lot too. So if you look at our community, a good life project started for Everybody's sure. Everybody's got to look at the good life project. But now it's not, it's entrepreneurs are a piece like me, but now she's just a global community of amazing people who just want to explore what it means to live a good life. I think entrepreneurs are setting the stage. They're the trailblazers, but it's not just, as you say, yeah. it's not just entrepreneurs. It's, I mean, because obviously living a good life is not just for an entrepreneur. I try and write each book with a person in mind. Um, I literally will create a persona that I'm writing too because that allows me to have a conversation rather than just confess. And the person I wrote this to is is not an entrepreneur. You know, this is a person who's in the middle years of their lives, who's been through enough to know that there's great things and there are struggles, but also they make great sacrifices. They've come second in almost everything that they've done, sometimes third, fourth, and fifth. Very lately lost a solid sense of identity along the way. They look in the mirror, it's not about not being happy with how their clothes fit, it's not being happy with who they are at this moment in time. And knowing at the same time that who they are is still there, it's just buried. Right. And it's about the process of how can we take small steps every day to let that person emerge again into life. You know, and also I want to just do a little shout out to the men because it seems like a lot of men in corporate world, you know, men particularly are sort of told from the time that they're, you know, young boys growing up, it's like, it's like we don't bring our feelings and our emotions into our decisions and into our business and into the way we conduct our lives. And sometimes I feel like men have to break out and become entrepreneurs so that they can start to allow all of that, to unleash that, to unleash that and connect to that humanness. And, you know, wouldn't it be beautiful if they could sit in, in around a boardroom table and say, how's everybody feeling about this decision? Or what does your gut tell you? I think it'd be amazing. I think one of the, it's funny, people have asked me many times, what's the, in your mind, what's the biggest benefit of being an entrepreneur? Like, is it the freedom? I'm like, yeah, right. there's no freedom at work. You know, yeah, seven days like, a week. You are never the boss. If you're an entrepreneur, <laughs> your customer is the boss. Like, to me, the greatest thing about being an entrepreneur is that you get to create the culture and then you get to choose the people that you bring into that culture. So, you know, like when we have emails or meetings with our team, most often, you know, like the sign off is XO or love. I know you could be bribed with dark chocolate though. Um, clearly. <laughs> I can be bribed with a lot of things that are nutritious and non-nutritious. <laughs> One thing I want to just come back to um, as we're wrapping up the three buckets and is again, the sensibility, feet on the ground, down to earth, keeping it real, bringing from the book to the world. You said in between those happy thoughts is a thing called reality. Deciding you want to be happy is step one, but deciding and repeating, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy, doesn't a happy make. That's called being a Pollyanna. Truth is, you don't live a good life by just snapping your fingers. You live a good life by doing the work, by building a practice. To me, it's, you know, it's, it's not a place at which you arrive. It's a daily practice. You know, a good life is a daily practice that over time leads to something astonishing. So like approach it that way. I and mean, the way the book is structured is designed so there's a little something to do every day. So you practice your way into it by just doing a little something every single day and take a long game. You know, it took you a, a long time very likely to get to your place in life now. So to start to move away from that, to start to build around it, is gonna be a little bit of work. And that's okay. You know, there's there's a lot of grace in understanding that um, the work is part of what makes the outcome. It's part of what makes the practice the work so is the rewarding. Right. Yeah. There's another video that I love of yours, which is hashtag I am willing, yeah. <laughs> which is the, about the paradox of change. Would yeah. you tell us about that? Yeah, it's just, you know, we're, we all want the outcome. We all want the dream outcome. We all point to something. We're like, we want that. We want to be in this place. Very few of us actually want to own the process. We want to own the outcome. You know, we want to walk into a restaurant and say, I own this place and walk to the table and say, oh, enjoying your food. This is, this is wonderful. This is mine. Very few of us actually want to do the work to build a restaurant because it's brutally hard. It's the same thing with almost every dream outcome in life. We want to own the, the, the outcome, but not the process. The person who really does what they need to do here in life is the one who's willing to raise their hand say, I'm willing to own the process as well as the outcome. You mentioned bigger world problems, you know, poverty. Nobody, you know, we can all agree, we don't want this, we don't want that, we want to end poverty, but are we really willing? 
It's very provocative. Are we really yeah. willing to, to own what's necessary to do that? Yeah. I just recently had the opportunity to work with youth leaders and millennials who I think get a bad rap and we're both parents of teenagers. And what is, what is your message to your daughter and to, to the youth? Like what, what, is, what do you want to impart on her? It's funny because I think my message is nothing that I could ever say to her because as we know, kids don't really listen to her model what we say, they watch what we do. You could text her. I could text her, <laughs> right. It's find a thing that lights you up and build your life around it. Maybe it's oh, your work, man. maybe it's not, but do the work to figure it out. It may take the whole first half of your life to figure it out. And that's okay. Play a long game, but that matters. You know, and find find the the activities that light you up and the relationships that light you up. And then do those things, be with those people as much as you can. In terms of the, the buckets, do you have a, a vulnerable bucket? Yeah, vitality, for sure. I love my work. There's so many paths that I can go down to fill that bucket with deeply meaningful, strength-driven work. I have amazing relationships in my life. Uh, I, I work, you know, my wife and I build our company together. How long have you been working with your wife? Um, well, on and off for a long time, but in this endeavor, in this venture, about two years now. Yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, and for me, the, my, my weak link, the thing that I kind of have to keep pulling myself back to is vitality because I can ignore that uh, in the name of keeping into relationships and building stuff in the world. So I'm constantly sort of committing to my daily practice to make sure that I have a baseline commitment to bucket filling there every day. Now, I know we have this very minute amount of time on the planet, but what do you want to accomplish and how do you want to be remembered? Yeah, it's, you know, there's a, I once heard Seth Godin answer this question, and uh, the essence of this message was, don't remember me, remember the people who I've worked with and the good work that they've done in the world. And I would hope that in some way, I would be able to make that sort of level of difference in other people's lives. I don't have this sort of deep ego need for me to have that. Um, I just want to do good work while I'm here. I can attest to the fact that you are doing good work while you're here. You are inspiring entrepreneurs through your Good Life Project, through your Good Life work and this new book, which is fantastic. And this is going to be released... Uh, October 18th. Right, okay, October 18th. I am really grateful that our paths have crossed and that you are a member of my tribe and our best self family. And I just want you to know that my, my Good Life buckets runneth over because of you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me.